What is up? Welcome to Baseball Now, the only place where there is baseball now. Today, I am really excited to interview interview our first guest, Jared Diamond, the national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, who is here today to talk about the 2020 baseball season and his new book, Swing Kings. But first, a word from our sponsor. Welcome to the podcast, Jared. So happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So you are the baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, right? Yes. I, I am. That I am. I'm the <laughs> national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal. So what have you been doing during this lockdown since there's no actual baseball to write about? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I get asked that question a lot. Everyone's wondering what a baseball writer does when there's no baseball being played. And the reality is, at least so far, uh, I've been super busy because this is an unprecedented circumstance. Baseball has never been shut down before. Opening day has never been delayed for this reason before. Uh, so there's all of these really interesting stories and angles to write about that no one had ever considered before. Baseball is an enormous business and it's now completely stopped. And it's led to uh, a lot of questions that I don't think anybody had ever thought they would have to ask before. And what's also really great is that when, whenever baseball does come back, hopefully this summer at some point, there'll be a whole new bunch of new stories to write that no one had ever thought about because then the question becomes, okay, how does this giant thing that had been completely shut down sort of ramp back up? Mm -hmm. Okay. So before we get into your book, Swing Kings, let me ask you a question on every baseball fan's mind. Are we going to have baseball this season and what will it be like? Man, I wish I knew the answer to that. I would have written it in the Wall Street Journal if I knew for sure. Uh, but here's what I do know. Major League Baseball is doing everything in its power to try to have a season in 2020, some sort of season. MLB believes that it is very important, not just for their own business, but for uh, sort of the culture and the health of the country. Uh, that having, They believe that having a season is really valuable and they're pushing really hard to have one. And they have a lot of ideas about how that might go. None of them are very solid at this point. They're all just that, ideas. Yeah. I wouldn't even call them plans. They're just ideas. And we know about some of them. Play every game in Arizona. Play games in Arizona and Florida. Or Arizona, Florida, and Texas. Or play all the games at Major League Stadiums, but uh, limit the travel by changing the alignment and having three divisions of 10 based on geography. These are all ideas that have been floated out there. What needs to happen for before any of this could really be uh, discussed seriously is the public health situation needs to improve. Uh, there needs to be more testing. There needs to be um, a plan in place for what happens if a baseball player were to get sick. These are all issues that still need to be worked out. Hopefully, uh, you know, we're sitting here, it's, it's the beginning of May. Hopefully, when we get in by the end of this month, we have some more answers about all of these questions. And the goal for baseball is to start a season in early July. That is the goal. Can I sit here and tell you that's definitely going to happen? No, I don't think anybody knows. I know that's the hope. The good news is there is time. If they don't make July, that's okay. You could start a season in August and still have sort of a shorter season. And all of these plans, they involve playing regular season games all the way through October, playoffs in November, or even into December, potentially, in 
exclusively warm weather cities or wow. dome stadiums, play a whole, play the World Series in Los Angeles or play it in Phoenix. Um, so these are all options. The other option, if things really aren't looking good, and let's say they couldn't start till September, hypothetically mm -hmm. speaking, even then, baseball is already sort of thinking about, okay, what sort of, you know, NCAA tournament style bracket 30 team playoff could we do for two months if that's all we have? So they're willing to get very creative to try to have some baseball in 2020, even if it's nothing like uh, the, the seasons we're used to. Okay, so let's talk about your book, Swing Kings. People might think you can't write a book about swinging a baseball bat, but you found a really amazing story that begins all the way back with Ted Williams. Tell us about how it happened and what happened. So I've been fascinating, fascinated in the topic of the swing and the changes in the swing, really for my whole career covering baseball. Uh, my first season covering baseball was 2013. I was covering the Mets, and that offseason, in between 2012 and 2013, the Mets signed Marlon Byrd to a minor league contract. He was a 35-year-old outfielder. Mm -hmm. He was coming off a steroid suspension, and it was a pretty insignificant signing. Uh, I don't think I even wrote about it when the Mets signed him. It was that sort of nothing. Wow. Um, but then, lo and behold, uh, you know, for those of you who remember 2013, Marlon Byrd not only makes the team out of spring training, uh, by early May, he was the Mets cleanup hitter, and he was their best player wow. that season. He had an incredible year. They ended up trading him to the Pirates, uh, and he helped the Pirates get to the postseason for that incredible run the Pirates had back in 2013. So all year long, I was spending time around Marlon. I would I'd ask him, like, what is going on? Like, How are you so good? Because, like, you were never this good before, um, and now you're, like, old, and you're not supposed to be this great. And he kind of wouldn't talk about it. It was very, he would be very coy. He was, he would say, oh, I kind of made some changes to my swing, but I don't really want to get into it. It was only at the end of the year, um, toward the end of the season, when he was already on Pittsburgh, when finally he sort of let people into the secret, which is he had spent the whole offseason in between 12 and 13, remaking his swing from the ground up with this guy named Doug Latta, who was a former swimming pool repairman who mm -hmm. never played baseball at a high level, yeah. who happened to own a batting cage in Southern California. And according to Marlon Bird, this guy taught him more about hitting in the swing than anybody he'd ever met, including major league hitting coaches that he had had for like over a decade. And that blew my mind. I just couldn't understand how this guy, this established major league player, has been in the major leagues at that point for over 10 years could say that some random guy he basically met off the street was teaching him more about hitting than anyone else he'd ever met. So I kind of put that aside. Um, but as the years went on, the next couple of years, we started hearing a lot more stories like that. Uh, in 2014, J.D. Martinez and Justin Turner had their incredible breakouts, uh, both of whom worked with outside hitting instructors. Uh, in 2015, Josh Donaldson, who also worked with an outside hitting instructor, not only won the MVP of the American League for the Blue Jays, but also had that independent hitting instructor, Bobby Tewksbury, throwing to him at the Home Run Derby on national yeah. TV for everybody to see. So that's when I realized there's something here. This is not just a one-off. There's a movement. There's something happening. The game is changing. And that led me down the road of trying to understand it. And that ultimately turned into Swing Kings. So um, I know like we've all heard of Ted Williams. 
But you talk about another key figure in, in the baseball revolutionary revolution of the swing. So can you tell us about Craig Wallenbrook? Craig Wallenbrook is maybe the most interesting person I've ever met in my entire life in any walk of life. And it was an honor and a thrill to be able to tell his story in the book because uh, his story deserved to be told because it's just so interesting. Craig Wallenbrock uh, is in his mid-70s now. He grew up in Southern California outside of LA, playing baseball, loving baseball. Uh, ended up getting an opportunity to go play at San Diego State University, which is a very good baseball program down in San Diego. Gets a scholarship to go play there. Before they played, he played a single game, though. He decided he was going to quit the team. He, it was the middle of the Vietnam War. He was having sort of a crisis. He was becoming disillusioned with the world. He had a falling out with his family. Uh, it was tough times for, for Craig Wallenbrock. He ends up quitting the team and moving down to the beach, essentially, and becoming a surfer full-time and doing a lot of drugs uh, mm -hmm. for years. And he kind of quit baseball, just said, I'm done with this game. I'm, I'm moving on. I failed. Uh, and this was the man who might have had a bigger impact on changing our understanding of the swing than anybody else, uh, which is amazing because he quit baseball originally when he was about 20 years old. Uh, and the story of how he comes back into baseball and, and learns what he learned is a big part of the book. And what's so interesting about talking to Craig Wallenbrock is he, he has such a wide breadth of knowledge, so many different subjects. So when you talk to him, he'll talk about books he read and painters he likes and folk music from the 60s and videos he watched on YouTube of, you know, lions chasing prey and all of these really fascinating stuff. And mm -hmm. somehow he relates it all to the swing. He, he is a, he's a fascinating individual. And, and to me, he is a true genius uh, when it comes to not just baseball, but sort of life. Uh, there's no one in sort of the hitting world that I would trust if I was sending someone to fix their swing. Craig Wallenbrock is right at the top of the list of the people I would want uh, being that coach. Okay, so in your book, you, you have a baseball um, tree where you show um, where, um, let's say, Ted Williams told Craig Wallenbrock this, and let's say Charlie Lau, or I might be pronouncing that wrong, taught somewhere this, or um, like, so how did you make this and how long did it take you? Yeah, it's so interesting. When I started working on the book, I had no idea that the tree was gonna have so many branches. I didn't know there was gonna be a tree at all. I knew about Craig Wallenbrock because he had worked with J.D. Martinez. I knew about Doug Latta because he had worked with both uh, Marlon Bird and Justin Turner. I knew about some of these other guys, but I didn't know how widespread and how long and how deep their roots really went. So when I started talking to Craig Wallenbrock, I thought I was going to be asking him about how the story of J.D. Martinez. That's what I thought I was going to be asking him about. But it turns out the story of J.D. Martinez has a lot of stops along the way. I and mean, Craig Wallenbrock would keep telling me about other people that he worked with that ultimately led him to J.D. Martinez. And he worked with a lot of great hitters over the years. So he started telling me about, well, you know, I worked with Jason Castro, who mm -hmm. is, is still playing. He's a catcher, I believe, is with the Angels right now. And he, and he worked with this guy and this guy. And Paul Canerco and Chase Utley and Michael Young and all these great players. And that's when I came to realize that this isn't just a story about Craig Wallenbrock teaching J.D. Martinez. It's a story about Craig Wallenbrock working with players for decades and 
and just how far it goes. And now the coaches that Craig Wall and Brock worked with, who now are, are great coaches in their own right. The, the, the hitting coach of the Dodgers is Robert Van Stoyak. Robert Van Stoyak was Craig Wallenbrock's disciple. He worked mm-hmm. with Craig Wallenbrock. He worked with Craig Wallenbrock and J.D. Martinez. Now that guy is the hitting coach of the Dodgers. Uh, Tim Laker, the hitting coach of the Seattle Mariners. He also worked uh, at length with Craig Wallenbrock for a long time. Uh, so these branches keep getting sort of deeper and deeper. And that's when I realized there's a, there's a good visual way of telling the story, not just with words or with a picture. So do you think he was the most influential of the hitting gurus? Uh, I don't think there's anyone. Yeah, I absolutely think that. I think Craig Wallenbrock, uh, he, he, is, he is the tree and everyone else is the branches in many ways. And you know, that came up when I was working on the book. Uh, people told me that, that everything that they learned or everything that's happening now sort of stems back to Craig Wallenbrock. And that doesn't mean that there aren't other great hitting coaches. It doesn't even necessarily mean that Craig Wallenbrock knows more, knows the most at this point. Uh, other people have picked up his knowledge and become great coaches in their own right and, and adapted and learned uh, based off things that Craig Wallenbrock was saying. And he's not the only one. There's a whole group of coaches out there that are trying to unlock the mysteries of the swing. You know, I, you could, uh, there's not enough room in one book to talk about all of them. So I tried to focus on the ones that I thought uh, were just particularly interesting and influential. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, my, grandparent, my, my grandfather and I got into an argument about what player had the most beautiful swing of all time. And I said Lou Gehrig, um, and he said um, Don Mattingly. And um, I have to ask you, what makes a baseball swing so complex and so difficult? And what makes it so pretty and so like, difficult to understand mm-hmm. and learn? What makes the baseball swing so fascinating and interesting is that it seems so simple but is actually so complicated. Anyone that's ever picked up anything that even looks like a bat, pick up a stick, you pick up a pen, you just naturally like swing it. Like you just do that. It's very like natural just to have a stick and try to hit a ball with it. That's why there's been so many bat and ball games that have existed through human history. Uh, going back to ancient times, there were early versions of some stick and ball games with trying to hit something as far as you can with uh, a stick. And so you think it's so easy, but in reality, it's just so hard. Uh, and no one really understood for a long time how to do it. We didn't have technology. We didn't have cameras, didn't have videos. It was just people trying to figure it out by feel. Um, but that's why I think it's so interesting. It's that it is so simple, yet so hard. You know, anyone could pick up a bat and swing it. But almost no one could pick up a bat and swing it and actually hit a ball far with it. Uh, I know I can't, most people can't, and I think that's what's so crazy about it. Yeah. Okay, so were the players willing to share with you about, like, what, how, about their swings and, like, how they learned them, or were they very secretive? Some were more open and some were less. Uh, you know, if you read the book, you'll see which players were sort of more open about yeah. the work they've done. J.D. Martinez was particularly open. Uh, about his story. Aaron Judge, however, who is also yeah. a major character in the book, he was less so. And I don't mm-hmm. really want to get into why right now, because that's sort of a bit of a spoiler for the book. But, you know, I understand why. There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot there. Um, there's a lot of different reasons why a player might be open with a reporter or not um, and trust me with their story. 
I'm thrilled that JD Martinez and Justin Turner did. And it, for those who didn't, I completely understand it and hope I was still able to tell their story uh, in spite of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what of those players was your favorite to talk to? Look, getting to talk to any Major League Baseball player is a thrill, but yeah. uh, JD Martinez was is just so fascinating. Because mm-hmm. he, he's his story is so interesting, and I was so thrilled to be able to finally hear. It took a long time. I spent over about a year, uh, about let's say ten months, trying to get JD Martinez to stop to give me the time I needed for this interview. Um, he kept promising he was going to do it, but we never would set a time, and he would be too busy, and this, that, and the mm-hmm. other. And finally, it happened, um, and it was great. We were on the phone for an hour. And he went into so much detail and was so excited to talk about his story. Um, and that just makes me excited. And I think it made the book much better. Yeah. So um, you say in the book that it was a magical game you had when you were in high school that inspired you to write this book. So have you really been thinking about this game since then? So, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I have been. When I was about 15 years old, uh, I had a, an amazing game uh, in a summer league baseball game where I hit three mammoth bombs in a row. It's the three mm-hmm. farthest balls I've ever hit uh, in my entire life. And you never forget stuff like that. You never forget. Uh, I, look, I remember so many baseball games when I was a kid. I remember individual Little League games when I was 11, 12 years old. If you love sports, these things stick with you. But that particular game stood out for different reasons because I had never accomplished what I accomplished that day. And yeah, you continue to try to chase uh, how it happened and try to understand how it happened. Um, I still don't have the answer, but uh, I did my best in the book to try to understand it. Mm-hmm. So how long did it take you to write the book exactly? I sold the book to my publisher in January of 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I turned in the first draft in June of 2019, so that around 17 to 18 months. And it didn't come out until March, uh, which was, so it ended up being um, over two years from the very beginning to it actually coming out. But to write the vast majority of it is about 18 months. So yeah, mm-hmm. it was, it's not easy, but it was, it was fun. Yeah. So what was the most surprising thing you learned about major league hitters in your studies? Major league hitters, a lot of them, what they say they do and what they actually do is not always the same thing. In many mm-hmm. cases, it's very different. And that was really fascinating to me. Like the mental cues that hitter used to be successful don't necessarily sync up with the actual movements of their swing. There's so many hitters that say, I swing down, but in reality, they swing up. And that doesn't mean those players are wrong. Those mental cues are genuine. They matter. If you would never tell a player, a great player, who says, I think I do X, that he's wrong if it's working. However, it's still interesting to know what it is they're actually doing because that's how we teach. Uh, yeah. It's not enough just to teach off feel. You need to teach off what the people's bodies actually are doing. And it just surprised me to find out that even the players themselves don't always know. Okay. So what do you think? Well, yeah. Wait for a second. Let's step away from the book. What do you think was a bigger deal in baseball, spin rate or the upswing? <laughs> What's a bigger deal in baseball? Um, I do think that the upswing is revolutionizing the game in a very profound way because pitching had gotten so far ahead of hitting. And pitching is always ahead of hitting. Uh, the, the, the baseball is always about 
pitching, leaping, far ahead of hitting, hitting, trying to just close the gap a tiny bit, and then pitching, jumping out ahead again. That's always what it's been. But if you were to think back to 2014, pitching was so absurd. No one could score. It was like impossible. So hitters had to find a way to strike back. And now they're finding it. Now, look, here we are. Swings, uh, things like spin rate and pitch design is just further proof that pitchers are always going to be ahead and they're always going to continue to keep widening that gap. But for a little while, hitters have closed it a bit. And I'm sure very soon pitchers are going to be uh, soaring out in front once again. Okay, so for a listener that hasn't read your book yet or is like thinking about reading your book, could you give a description of your book? Thinking is the story of uh, a group of players who remade their swings from scratch in a very unusual way, which is going to work with outside hitting instructors, guys that didn't play baseball themselves, and how these outside hitting instructors are leading a revolution that's changed the game forever. Uh, home runs are at an all-time high. And a big reason why is because of the swing and it being mm -hmm. taught differently than it had ever been taught before. And I, in the book, tries to explain how that's happened and why this incredible innovation uh, is taking place in such an unusual way. Okay, so when you talk about players that work to reinvent their swings, it, you say it comes down to, to making tiny changes. Do you think that idea can apply to other things in life? Oh, there's no doubt that it could. Uh, I think one thing that writing Swing Kings taught me, I think hopefully for readers shows, is that it's never too late. Um, you could get better at something than you are. Just because you think you've reached your peak doesn't mean you have, that there is more in the tank with the right teaching and the right technique and the right understanding of it. Um, for the hitters I write about in the book, people thought they were done. People thought that they had reached the limit of their abilities. And it turned out they were wrong. They, these players did have more to offer. They just needed help unlocking that potential. And I think that's the case, not just with sports, but with everything for a lot of people, that people often just give up. They think that this is, this is sort of the most I can be. Uh, and you're told that you're not good enough. But that's not always true. Uh, it's, just, it's just about finding sort of that missing ingredient that you don't know about. So what is it like being a baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal? Oh, it's the best job in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. I absolutely adore it. I, I get to write about my favorite sport, the sport I love more than anything in the world, and write about it in the most interesting ways I could imagine. I have so few limitations at the Wall Street Journal. I could write whatever I find interesting. Um, my job, my mandate is to go out there and just write the most interesting baseball story I possibly can about anything. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a thrill. So getting to... Uh, write about the game I love in such a broad, interesting way. Um, it's it's great, and I can't wait to be out of the ballpark again. I hope it's yeah. uh, I hope it's before too long. Mm -hmm. So, what advice would you give a kid who wants to pursue a baseball career in journalism? Very simple. Uh, you're already off to a good start. Just do it. The best way to become a journalist is just to do journalism. Um, write. Uh, read and write, basically. Read great baseball writers uh, and really just read great writing of all kinds to try to help model a voice, find your voice, and then just write. Go out there and do it. Go talk to people. Go write about local Little League games. Go write about local high school games. Go interview players of any level and write their stories. Um, 
it's the best way to practice. The, the only way to learn how to do this job is to do it. You, know, you, you can't really learn it in a classroom. You can't learn it from a teacher. Uh, you could get advice. You could get better at it from people telling you what to do. But the only way to really do it is just to go do it. And the good news is, normally, not right now, there's baseball and sports being played everywhere. And the opportunity just to go uh, work on your, your skills and your craft exists all the time. Um, it doesn't even matter necessarily if people are reading it just for you to have the experience of going out there and writing. And then as soon as you're in the position to, if there's a, a paper at your middle school, or your high school, or your elementary school, go write for that. Um, the more you write, the, the better you will be. It's, I know it sounds really simple. It's not simple, it's hard, but in some ways uh, it is simple. Just go do it. If you want it and you're willing to hustle for it, you will be ahead of most people who won't put in the same amount of work that you are. So if you could have redone your Little League, what have you done? What, have, what, what would have you done differently? If I could have redone my Little League, my Little League career? Oh, man. I don't know. I, I love playing baseball. I played baseball up until I was 18 years old. I played, you know, Little League. All, and I all the way ended up through my high school baseball team. Um, I think I had a lot of fun. You know, it's easy to say in hindsight, like, oh, I wish I hadn't taken it so seriously. I wish I just had more fun. But yeah. the reality is, you know what? Taking it that seriously is part of the fun. Like, those games, me and my friends and my dad and my brother, we could still recite play-by-plays, individual pitches of literally games from when I was 10. Um, it's incredible. I, they stick in my mind so vividly. Um, blown calls by umpires, errors that were made, uh, you know, individual at-bats. Um, I guess if you could change anything, it just make sure that uh, yeah, it's hard to do this when you're a kid, but uh, try to never forget that your baseball career will end. That's going to end for almost everybody. It's going to end before you want it to. Mm -hmm. So uh, enjoy every single second you have out on the field because you, you really, for most of us, 99.9% uh, .9 of us, you don't get nearly as much time to play baseball as you wish you would. Yeah. Okay, one final question before we go. What did you think about the Red Sox and Astros punishments? Should the league have done more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a hard question. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's important to separate them. They are different situations. It seems very clear by all accounts, all the evidence, everyone, everyone is saying that what the Astros did and what the Red Sox did were different in severity. What the Astros did was really crossing a line. Now, the Red Sox broke the rules, too, not absolving them. But there are degrees. Here. What the Astros did was so clearly beyond anything else. So they were hit really hard. The Red Sox were hit less hard. And there's certainly people out there that say the Red Sox should have been punished more. Um, I don't know. In some ways, perhaps, it seems like the Red Sox didn't really do all that much. That was all that bad. And that's why they weren't punished as hard as the Astros. Now, should have the Astros been punished more harshly? I know there's a lot of people that think they should have. A lot of people, including other players, believe that players on the Astros should have been suspended, yeah. um, that maybe the owner should have been punished more. And frankly, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't argue with that. I understand why people feel that way. I understand why baseball agreed not to punish any players. They made a deal with the players to say, if you are honest about what happened, we will not suspend you. Now, some people don't like that. They think that was the wrong decision. Um, we could debate that forever, but the reality is that was the choice MLB made. They believe it allowed them to get at the truth, to get at what really happened. 
now we do, I think, have a pretty good sense of what the Astros did, and hopefully um, it doesn't happen again. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on the show, Jared. And everyone, go get a copy of Swing Kings. It's a great read. That's about it for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and have a great day, and peace out. Bye, Jared.